There have been in the last year several disturbing trends that have come to light when it comes to what we as a people are eating, what we are drinking, and what we are looking at on the internet. I'll give you a few statistics to tell you what I mean. Health coaches and, and uh, nutrition coaches say that on average there's probably about a 20 to 30% increase in overeating over the last year. 20 or 30% more people have coped with the stress and the fear and the isolation of the year by eating more than they used to. Now, on the flip side of this, about half of Americans report that at some point in the last year, they lost their appetite for a little while, and even 11% of us reported that we lost our appetite for the whole day for multiple days in a row. So this one seems to be going both directions, some of us losing our appetite, some of us finding ourselves unable to control it in the stress of the year. Moving next to what we have been drinking as a country. The University of Arizona does a study regularly where they ask people about their drinking habits with regard to alcohol. And then based on the answers to the very specific questions, they file the population into groups of does not partake or partakes at a safe level, at risk, or what they call probable dependence, which is what we would call alcoholism, being addicted to alcohol. Before the pandemic, 8% of people fall into that last category of probable dependence based on their drinking patterns. During the lockdown, 29% of Americans fell into that pattern. That means almost a third of the country when it comes to adults were drinking at a level that the Bible would call drunkenness during the lockdown period. And lastly, with what we've been looking at online, there's a watchdog group called Fight the New Drug who measures this stuff a lot. And they report that worldwide, when the lockdowns began, pornography use went up 11.8% worldwide. And at the same time, some of the bigger websites that house this stuff ran free promotions on their premium services targeted to areas that were in lockdown in order to recruit more business and entrap more people into the sin of pornography. So you add these up, and what you have is very many people who were tempted and fell to different forms of self-indulgence during the fear, the stress, the uncertainty, and the isolation of the last year. Now, when that has happened, and then our Bible reading plan takes us through a passage that addresses all three, drinking too much, eating too much, and illicit use of God's good gift of sex, when all three of those are hit in a passage shortly after that time, we have to wonder what God is doing. And perhaps what he is doing is either guarding us against these sins or in a group this size, I must assume that there are some who have fallen into them and are in need this morning of repentance. And that is what I pray this word does for everyone here this morning. If you manage to avoid these forms of self-indulgence over the last year, my prayer is that God will use these words to even strengthen that self-control and to guard you against falling away from the good ways of Jesus. And if you have fallen into any of these sins, my prayer is that the Lord will meet you, call you to repentance, and bring you to the right path. When Jesus comes into contact with a sinner who is broken over their sin, what he tends to do is offer them forgiveness and call them back to the right path. And so if that is you this morning, my prayer is that he will do that very thing for you. 
Now, if you are here with us this morning and you would say you don't follow Jesus, that you don't belong to Jesus, I want you to know we're going to read from the wisdom literature this morning. And the wisdom books were designed to show God's people how to walk in his good ways. They show those who are not God's people how good his ways are. They show us that these are ways worthy of following, that then we evaluate our lives and say, oh, the standard that I rebelled from, it's, it's good. I would have a better life if I walked in these good ways. The Lord can use that to reveal our rebellion in our heart, reveal our need to come back and receive forgiveness by the blood of Jesus. And I pray that's what it does for you this morning if you don't follow Jesus. It shows you how good his ways are how worthy they have been of following for your whole life and that you will turn and because of the blood of Jesus that is offered to forgive you for your sins, would trust in him and receive forgiveness. Let's look together at Proverbs 23. The section that we're gonna read from goes from verse 19 all the way down to verse 35. If this sermon speaks to you, when you go home this afternoon, I recommend you read that whole section, but we are gonna focus just on a few verses, first verses 19 to 21, And then we'll skip down to verses 26 to 28. So that's Proverbs 23, 19 to 21, and 26 to 28. Here are the words of the Lord. Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Skipping down to verse 26. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. For a prostitute is a deep pit. An adulteress is a narrow well. She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a picture of how our appetites can destroy us. And along with them then comes a warning. Through them, the Lord warns us against three particular forms of self-indulgence. That is drunkenness, gluttony, and the illicit use of God's good gift of sex. Through them, I wonder if the Lord might call also some within our number to repent if we have fallen into these sins. This morning, we'll look at these verses, examine them just to understand exactly what do they say. Then we'll pull a few principles from them. And then finally, I'll outline, okay, if that's the wrong way to live, what is the right way to receive God's gifts in these areas? Let's look at the verses first. We'll start with verse 19. Now, verses 19 and 26 are very similar, and these sets of three verses together are formatted very similarly. They start with an appeal to listen, and then they tell you what sorts of people and what sorts of sins to avoid. You'll see this pattern as we examine them. Verse 19 is the appeal to listen. Hear, my son, he says, and be wise. In that, we see who particularly the words are directed to, young men, the son of this man. That means if you're a young woman or an older man or an older woman, you'll need to sort of adapt what we're talking about to your situation because he's speaking specifically to young men. And the instruction he gives them is direct your heart in the way. That means the way is the Proverbs way of saying the good way of life, the wise life that we should be living. Direct your heart there. That simply means you should teach your heart to want to live rightly. 
Whatever the good way is that the Proverbs lay out for us, when you see it, you should be telling your heart, that's what I want. That's what I want to live. I want to live in these good ways because this God is good and his ways are good. So when we outline the good way later, what we must do is direct our heart towards it and long for that more than we long for the wickedness of the world. We move on to verse 20 and we see the instruction he gives. This is the instruction he wants his sons to listen to. He gives them two groups of people to avoid, drunkards and what he calls gluttonous eaters of meat. So I'll define both of those for you because they're very particular words that are used. In my translation, the word for drunkards has a footnote, and down at the bottom it says those who drink too much wine. If you have a different Bible, it may have something similar like that. That is essentially what they are talking about. The original word has the meaning of wine addicts. What we might call an alcoholic, though not a recovering alcoholic, but somebody who is actively in that lifestyle, or what we may just simply call, as the translation does here, a drunkard. This is somebody whose appetite for alcohol alcohol is strong. They go back to it often and drink too much often. That's the first sort of person, the first group there. The second person, the second group, their appetite is controlling them in a different way, not with drinking too much wine, but with eating too much rich and delicious food. This is what my translation calls gluttonous eaters of meat. If you have a different one, it may say something similar. The word for meat there refers to not just any meat, but the really good meat, the meat that's closest to the bone. I used to work in a steakhouse, and we would say the closer to the bone, the sweeter the meat, right? It was the really, really good stuff. This is the most rich and wonderful food that life has to offer, right? The, the french fries, the steak, the cookies, the cake, the banana pudding, the good calorie dense, you eat it and you are satisfied food. Gluttonous eaters of meat or gluttons take that kind of food and make it their regular everyday diet so that they are taking in far too many calories, eating far too much rich food and neglecting the other kinds of food. So this is your two groups. Often these groups can congregate together, drunkards together, partying together. Sometimes there's overlap between the two groups, but the sage says, avoid those groups. And then he says, why in verse 21? For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, he says. Slumber will clothe them with rags. And so the idea is, if you fall into that lifestyle yourself, a lifestyle of drunkenness or a lifestyle of eating the rich food like it's just breakfast and lunch, if you fall into that lifestyle, it can lead to destruction for you. Now, before we go farther, I've got to stop and admit that if you have grown up in the Baptist church, as I have spent a long time myself, this may be an area where your preachers have failed you. Because preachers like me have a reputation, don't we, of condemning one of those sins more harshly than the other. And if you've grown up in our ranks, you may have heard many times the use of alcohol condemned at all on one hand, but maybe you've never heard a sermon in your whole life on gluttony. And this can lead to an imbalance of proportions in God's morals. And here we see drunkenness and gluttony set alongside each other as if they were the same thing that had the same root. And they do have the same root. The root is the appetite ruling you. 
The person who says, I want another glass and just takes it is really no different at heart from the person who says, I want to eat more and just takes it. Overindulging in either of these ways is a sin before God, a lifestyle that we just read here, no matter which one it is, leads to destruction. Now we move down to verse 26, where we see the same format. First, we have the appeal to listen, right? Verse 26 in that first couplet there. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So same pattern. Then he gives the instruction, and it is, again, two types of people to avoid. This time, a prostitute who is, he says, a deep pit, and an adulteress who he says is a narrow well, sort of likening those two types of people and saying they're both a trap, Now, you need to know here that the word that is translated adulterous here is a very particular word in the original, and its literal meaning is strange woman, which means a woman, not your wife, who is trying to get into bed with you. All right, so this is anyone who is not your wife. So if you're not married, you're not excluded from this instruction because you're not saying, well, it's not adultery, so I don't have to worry about it. No, this is any woman who is foreign from your marriage covenant. If you're not in a marriage covenant with her and she is trying to get you into bed, this is the kind of person he's talking about. Ladies, remember that this is written to young men, and so we need to think in the inverse as well. Someone who is not in a marriage relationship with you trying to pull you in like this either for their pleasure, that's the adulteress, or for profit, that's the prostitute. These are people you need to avoid because they are pulling you into grievous sin against God. And we see why, again, in verse 28. It's because that she lies in wait like a robber, it says, increases the traitors among mankind. Now, it's true that you should not go seeking sinful relationships, right? But the point here is that you don't have to because they are seeking you. If you go off to college, you will find people who want to lure you into sin. If you travel around much on the internet, you will find pop-up windows that are trying to get you to click and go to the wrong places. Satan is dangling the bait and hiding the hook from all of us. These things are after us. They're lying in wait, it says, like a robber, increasing the traitors among mankind, trying to get us to either betray our marriage vows or betray our relationship of purity with the Lord. And we cannot let either of these happen. So there's the specifics of what he is talking about. We can pull two principles, at least, from what he has to say to us here. First, avoid people who tempt you into sin. This is especially important when you're choosing your friend group as the sage is counseling his son here. Now, why do you need to avoid groups that are going to lure you into sin? Well, for the same reason you don't want your kids hanging out with the wrong crowd, because you don't want them to be influenced by them, right? These sins are contagious in nature. If you call close friends a group where many of them are falling into the same sin, you'll probably get into it yourself. If you become friends with people who are really into coffee, you'll probably get into coffee yourself. If you become friends with people who are really into checkers, you'll probably get into checkers yourself. These things are kind of contagious in this way. If you become friends with people who are really into abusing alcohol, you will begin to do it yourself, most likely. It will influence you. If you come into a relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend who tempts you regularly into sin, it's only a matter of time before you fall into it. And so the principle we pull from the sage's words here is 
don't spend a lot of time around people who are pulling you into sin. Parents, this means something for you as you are helping your kids choose a college and sending them off to college. This means that one of the most important factors in whether they flourish or not when they are gone is the friend group that they choose there. Now, we as parents tend to put a lot of thought into which school should they choose, right? We're very concerned about what they might be taught if we send them to IU and they get involved in the Kinsey Institute down there, or what kind of nonsense are they going to be taught down there? What kind of critical theory thing are they going to cram down my child's throat? Are they going to teach them evolution? All these things we're concerned about, right? And so a lot of times what we're saying is we want to send them to a good school that teaches sound doctrine because I want truth taught to my child. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but here's what we need to keep in mind. Your child will do better under teaching that is not true if they are part of a church that is healthy and strong and they have good, solid Christian friends. Then they will if you send them off to a solid school and they get involved with drunkards and gluttons and start dating a man or woman who tempts them into sin. Better to have the solid church, the solid friendship, than the solid teaching in the classroom. Now, if I had my choice, I'd take all three. But the point is, you want to take extra care into the relationships, the friend groups, and the ministries that your child gets involved in in college, because that will actually influence them more and help them to understand what is true and false about the teaching that they are received when they go away. So take care concerning the relationships and the friendships your kids get into when they go off to college. That's the first principle we can pull out of it. Avoid people who tempt you into sin. The second one is that all three of these forms of self-indulgence, drunkenness, gluttony, and immoral sex, they all lead to destruction, even in this life, typically. Now, much of the Bible talks about the destruction that can come eternally if we meet God with our sins still on our name, without Jesus Christ forgiving us. But these words deal instead with the temporary destruction and sorrow that comes on you in this life when you lead these kind of lifestyles. He says, the drunken and glutton will come to poverty, slumber will clothe them with rags. So he's particularly concerned with the way that this stuff can alter you, make you a little more lethargic, a little more lazy, and it can bleed you right down into poverty. He speaks of the prostitute and adulteress and says, that is a trap. It is a pit. Don't fall into it. And this can take so many forms that we must take as a warning. A businessman can go to lunch every day, eat too much and drink two beers at lunch and be completely ineffective in his job all afternoon and then come in the next day and do it again and come in the next day and do it again, not realizing that he isn't getting anything done in the afternoon. And then promotions come around and he gets passed over for a promotion. Why? Because he's not effective after one o'clock. And then hard times hit the company and he's the one who loses his job. Why? Because he's been so focused on what he has for lunch and what he drinks at lunch that he's not effective at his job. A student can go off to college and get involved with a crowd that parties and drinks and smokes out and gets so into it that he fails out of college. You've heard the stories, right? You can eat just a little too much 
And 1,700 calories is a half a pound on your body, by the way. You eat that much every month extra. It's a half pound every month. That's six pounds a year. You do that for 20 years and you've added 120 pounds to your body. And the next thing you know, you can be sitting with your doctor when they're talking about your increased risk for heart disease and diabetes and gallbladder disease and a whole other hosts of diseases that can come after years of overeating and gluttony. A father can find his home life stressful and so he can escape through drunkenness and then begin to mistreat his children and his wife. This can end in even more difficulty for him, finally ending in divorce and lots of money spent on divorce lawyers while he has lost his whole family because he has indulged in alcohol. Some are stuck in poverty and unable to climb out of it because they're spending every extra dollar they get at the liquor store. Some get hooked on pornography at a young age, and then when they get married, they're plagued with boredom and even impotence and cannot enjoy the delights of marriage because of their past sin that still haunts them. And still others have a happy marriage and spend a half hour with someone, you know, just enjoying someone that they're not married to, and then lose all of the happiness that they would have had in their marriage. Tragic story after tragic story. I probably don't need to tell you more. These overindulgences can lead to destruction, not just in the next life, but in this life. And so the point is, if you haven't fallen into it, avoid it. And if you have fallen into it, get yourself out of it. That is the point of the sage's words here of warning against these lifestyles. But there's more to what he's saying. Now, he's not just saying, here's what's not to do, right? Here's how you stray off of the path. Don't stray off of the path like that. He's not just saying that. Remember, he begins in verse 19 with direct your heart in the way, right? So there's more to it than not doing the bad stuff. We also got to ask the question, okay, what is the good stuff? How am I supposed to enjoy these things that God gives if I am supposed to enjoy them at all? Is, is the right thing to just never go to Burger King, never drink anything, and even if we're married, just live in some false form of purity forever? Is that the right path? Or what does the Bible prescribe for us when he gives us good gifts? So that's what we're going to spend most of the rest of this morning on, just looking at, okay, what are we supposed to do? Here's the way that he is talking about. The beginning of wisdom, it says, is fearing God. Uh, that is looking to God, seeing a glimpse of his glory, and just trembling with wonder. Right? Just, wow, your heart bursting in awe before him. Several times the wisdom books say that is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. It repeats phrases like this. The foundation is having that awe-filled reverence before God that makes you say, okay, I will listen to him because he is like nothing else that I have ever encountered. He is the creator of this world, and so I'll listen to his teachings about how to live. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the beginning of it. Now, when it comes to self-indulgence, the opposite of that would be being so enthralled with how amazing God's gifts are that we're just taken with them, right? 
Now, the truth is, some of these good things, when you really partake of the best of it, you can just sit back in awe and wonder. I wonder how many of you, after your Easter dinner, which was a proper feast, by the way, don't feel guilty about Easter dinner. I took in a big Easter dinner, big ham, mashed potatoes. We had some good stuff like that. And you just lean back in your chair and say, oh, right? That's a satisfied, awe-filled feeling. It's not just pleasure, right? It's amazement. There's something that looks at that table and says, that was the best pulled pork I have ever had. And you're full of wonder and awe before what you just ate, before God's gift. Or sometimes a husband and wife, when they come together and enjoy one another's company in that way, afterwards you just say, wow, right? It's not just pleasure. It's not just happiness. There is awe there. There is wonder there that says, I don't understand what just happened. That was, that was something. God's gifts are good and amazing. There's, an, there's a level of amazement when you receive God's gifts, right? And the heart of fearing God says he is even more amazing than his gifts. A heart that fears God would receive those gifts and say, okay, that's amazing, but... I know someone even more amazing than that. I have seen one who is glorious, and it is the Lord. So the foundation we've got to get right is to say that, okay, his gifts are good and they are amazing, but the level of awe and reverence I have for those gifts is small compared to the awe and reverence I have for the Lord God. To the point that when we stand together and we sing his chariots of wrath, the deep thunder clouds form and dark is his path on the wings of the storm. The awe in our hearts in that moment ought to be greater than the awe in our hearts after we've had a good feast because he is better than his gifts. He is worthy of more awe and more wonder than his gifts are worthy of. Now, if we can get that right, then we've got our hearts in the right spot, worshiping him above all and seeing all the other things, not as an opportunity to gratify our bellies and our appetites, but as good gifts from him. So the heart that does this wrong would just sense a desire for the gift and just consume it without thought, right? The, the thing in charge is the desire, is the appetite. And those things out there are just things that can satisfy the appetite. I want another glass, bam. I want another glass, bam. I want a steak, bam. Right? I want this, I want her, I want him, bam. I go and I get myself satisfied by all of the things that are out there. This is a life that puts the appetite in the driver's seat. This is a life that treats the appetite as king. And that is the heart of drunkenness, gluttony, and illicit sex. A heart that uses the appetite as king. Instead, the heart that fears God says he is better than any of his gifts. And when you see how amazing he is, then that frees you to enjoy his gifts in the way that he would have us enjoy them with thankfulness to him. So after you've gotten your heart there, after you're saying, okay, I want to enjoy his gifts with thankfulness to him, that is the next step indeed. Receive the gifts, give thanks to God, and receive them in the way that he would have us receive them. In other words, following his instruction, when and how he says to receive and enjoy them. To do this, you have to recognize that all three of the good gifts we're talking about are more than you need to survive for life and godliness. The very best food in the world 
There are plenty of people who never get to eat it and they live good, godly lives. There are plenty of people in this room who have never drank a drop of alcohol and live good, godly lives. You can live a good, godly life without that stuff. And there are some in this room who have never been married and never known the happiness of marital intimacy and are living a good and godly life, right? All three of these things are luxuries. They are not necessities. You don't need the best food. You don't need alcohol to have a good life. And you don't need marriage and sex to have a good life. All of these things are over-the-top, generous gifts from God. Now, if we look at them like we need them, in order to have a good, full, and rich life, well, there's another lie that can lure us into immorality. Then we start to think God has shortchanged us when we don't have them, when no, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. So when he does give them, how should we enjoy them? What is his teaching there? We'll take them in that same order, good food, alcohol, and then intimacy. For good food, for the best food that's out there, you know, some food's just nutritious, but some of it's really good, right? It's the difference between a spinach salad and a hamburger, isn't there, right? For the good stuff, uh, how do you do that? Normal life is moderation, right? In line with how your body is designed. Your body can take in so much and be healthy and need so much of this and so much of that. So just submit to the way that God designed your body. Go with that. Moderation normally with periods of feasting and occasional times of fasting, we see a lot of feasts prescribed in Israel's law. When the Passover feast came, they got together and to the glory of God, each house slaughtered their own lamb and they ate that whole lamb. And in the morning, any leftovers they burned. So it's like you and your wife and your four kids eating an entire lamb that night for supper. Talk about a feast, right? You just get to the best stuff, enjoy it, and whatever's left in the next morning was burned. Right? There are times of feasting in the Bible. And most of them, actually, in fact, all of the ones in the Bible are religious feasts. So Easter, Christmas, Thanksgiving times like that's the time to bust out the Easter ham and have a great time together. There are also, though, periods of fasting, periods where you say, okay, my body can go three days without food. I'm going to get hungry, but I can do it. And so for this reason or that reason, I'm going to deny myself all food for a little while. This particularly happens when you are grieving, when you are repenting of sin, or when you have something really serious you need to ask of God for. If your child's life and health is in danger, that might be the time to skip food for two days and just plead together, God, would you spare our son's life? When you have something big and serious to ask, there's a reason to fast sometimes. So moderation normally, some feasts, especially to the glory of God, some fasts, all of them with thankfulness. This is why Christians pray before every meal that we eat, right? Because when you get into that habit of just see it and eat it without stopping to thank God, well, that's a path into gluttony. For some of us, one of the best things we can do to avoid gluttony is just to stop and thank God before every time we eat. If you can see him as the giver and see that meal as a good gift, sometimes that makes you look down and say, oh, you know what? This is actually too much for a Thursday afternoon. I probably need to scale it back a little because now you got your heart right, right? You're setting yourself before God as the giver of good gifts. Let's move to the next one, to alcohol use. Like I said, many in this room have never had a drop of alcohol in their lives and you're living good and godly lives. That's a good way to live. Uh, for many, there is an acknowledgement 
that with alcohol comes temptation to sin and we wanna avoid temptation and so let's just cast that stuff out. If that's you, here's how I encourage you to look at it. I encourage you to look at it as I am awaiting until the marriage supper of the lamb when my body will no longer desire anything sinful and I will sit before my Lord Jesus and at that marriage supper, we will lift up a glass of wine together. You need to know this, Christian. At the marriage supper of the Lamb, you're going to lift up a glass and Jesus says, I will drink this wine anew with you in my kingdom. In that day, in a body that is not prone to temptation at all, we will lift up glasses together and enjoy it with him. But there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm waiting until then. This life, I'm just going without it because I know my body, I know I'm prone to temptation, and I can't get drunk if I don't ever drink a drop. If you do choose to partake of it, you need to know there are two times in Scripture where people drink alcohol and the Lord smiles upon it rather than frowning upon it. The first one is a feast, especially a religious feast. Uh, people like to uh, make much of Jesus changing water into wine, right? People, oh, didn't Jesus change water into wine? Yeah, he did it at a wedding feast, right? At feasts is when the Lord approves often the use of this stuff. So special occasions, your son comes home that you haven't seen in two years, or it's your anniversary or something like that. That's a good time to do that if you partake of it. The other one is medicinal use. Uh, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, uh, no longer just drink water, but drink a little bit of wine for the sake of your frequent ailments, right? Use it to heal your body. In our day, we have access to a lot more medicine. We often don't need that, but some medicines do have alcohol in them, and I don't think you need to feel guilty about having them. NyQuil has alcohol in it. You don't need to feel bad if you drink NyQuil, have a good night's sleep, and your body feels better the next day. So feasting and medicinal use are the two times that you see it there in the scripture. In all of those occasions, the clear teaching in the Bible is to avoid drunkenness at all costs. So if you are even getting close to it, scale back and do something to make it right. Lastly, what's the right way to enjoy God's good gift of sex? Well, like I've said before, God confines that to within marriage, right? When Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate, right? The reason that a man and wife can come together like that is because God has already joined them together. So it's not a matter of we love each other. It's not a matter of I know this is the right person. No, it's a matter of whether God has joined you together in the covenant of marriage. And so that puts us in this interesting situation where the same act that on your wedding night, God would smile upon and be glad that you're enjoying would be abhorrent to him the night before your wedding. Because it's not about who it's with, it's about whether you are married to the person that it is. It's not about whether you've found your person or not. It's about whether you are within that covenant of marriage. Now, if God gives you a spouse, then you've got somebody to enjoy that with. Plenty of people in this room right now do not have spouses. Some have and don't anymore. Some don't now and will one day, and some never have and never will. And they can tell you the testimony in their lives that you don't need that to live a good and godly life. It's a good gift, but it's not a necessity, and some need to hear that. If God's given you a spouse, the regular pattern in the Bible seems to be kind of a lot like food, like regular, some feasting, and some fasting, just like I described food. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if you're married, not to deprive each other. You have a good sense of what level your spouse's desires are at. Try to be there for them. Uh, make sure that is regular in a way that is, uh, what would you say, just, just satisfying and refreshing to them. Also, there are times when it's appropriate to feast. Uh, on what sounds like their wedding night in Song of Solomon 5.1, the friends say to the man and to the bride, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is a feast, not just of food and of drink, but a feast on the good gifts of each other that he has given you. There are times where that is appropriate in marriage. And the Bible even prescribes a short period of fasting for a husband and a wife together. Uh, in the same passage earlier in 1 Corinthians that I talked about, where he talks about you know, not depriving each other, he does give one exception. He says, except by mutual consent for a short time to devote yourselves to prayer. And so there may be times where you skip one or two of what would be a regular frequency for you just to devote yourselves to prayer, to devote that desire and that energy to something very serious that you want to ask the Lord for together, much like you would if you were fasting from food. So to summarize that all up, we receive God's good gifts in the fear of God, worshiping him more than the gifts, and we do it in a way that is in line with his teachings. Let me just make this concrete and just take you through like the whole cycle of life of, let's just say that there's one young woman who has just gone off to college, right? And she's got a date with a, a young man who looks like a, a promising suitor, you might say. And she's out on this date and, hey, that's a special occasion. So there is more food on her plate than normal. And if she partakes, there may even be a glass of wine on that date while she's with him. They're having a good time, but eventually this guy reveals himself to be a little more of a sleazeball than she thought he was. And this guy is after things he should not be after. And so she realizes, okay, this is, this is one of those people who is trying to lure me into sin. And so this was fun, but, but I'm out. I'm done, right? Because taking the sage's advice here, that is a deep well, or that is a narrow well, that is a deep pit that you don't want to fall into. So she pulls back, right? Okay. Five years later, she's dating another guy. This guy looks like he's the real deal. Mom and dad like him. His parents like her. Things are going well. He's like subtly asking, you know, like what size ring she wears for no reason at all, you know. And so it's the sense that this might be going a certain direction, right? And she's got to figure out, okay, I think this guy could be a good husband. What am I going to do if he asks, right? Am I going to say yes or no? Well, there's a good time to fast, there's a good time to say, Lord, I don't have enough wisdom to make this decision. I'm not going to have food for two and a half days, and I'm going to ask you every time my stomach growls, will you help me make this decision well? There are times for fasting in that way. Then, lo and behold, she does marry him. She gets a little older. 17 years later, they're going out on their 17th anniversary there's a time for feasting, right? Go on a trip if you can afford it. Go get a hotel room if you can afford it. Go out to dinner and get the nicest meal that you can afford. And then, yes, as Song of Solomon says, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. There's a time for every type of feasting. A few years later, she gets a call from the doctor. And the doctor says, we're going to need to run some more tests. And, and this is serious. Now she's scared. She goes and tells her husband, she says, I'm scared. And he says, okay, we, we were going to come together tonight. Let's not. 
And two nights from now, we were going to do it again. Let's not. And let's get on our knees together and plead to the Lord for your life and for good news from the doctor. There's a time for a couple to fast together. You see, there are times in life for everything, right? For everything, there is a season. There's time for feasting. There's time for fasting. There's time for regular life. And in the fear of God, we do them all worshiping him in the way that he teaches us to do it. So we have seen, on one hand, the right way to walk in, the way that the Proverbs lead us in. And we've seen, on the other hand, some warnings against self-indulgence that can destroy us. And here's what it comes down to. For many of us, it just needs to be a resolution that says, with God's help, I will avoid these sins as I have avoided them in the past. But some of us will look at these three sins, drunkenness, gluttony, and illicit sex, especially things online through the last year, and will say, Lord God, I need repentance. I have fallen into sin in the last year, or perhaps before that even. If that's you, and the Lord brought you here today to hear this word, which you probably didn't know you were going to hear, he's arranging all of this, so that in this moment, he can call you to come back to him. So if you're a follower of Jesus, what you must do is confess your sin to him, begin fighting the good fight, removing all temptation from this sin in your life, look to him and walk in holiness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, what you must do is trust in Jesus to offer you forgiveness for your sins. He offers it freely to anyone who will take it. He says, come, be forgiven, and drink of the well of eternal life. If you would look to him and trust him, because his death pays for the sins of sinners and his life guarantees eternal life to all who trust him, you will find there forgiveness and repentance. So my call to you is if you need it, turn and come back to the Lord. Let's pray together.